Good day, and thanks for joining us for our Corn and Soybean Outlook Update webinar. I'm Jim Minter, Director of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture, and joining me today are my colleagues, Dr. Nathan Thompson, who's an Associate Professor in the Department of Agricultural Economics here at Purdue, and Michael Langemeyer, who's also a Professor of Ag Economics as well as Associate Director of the Center for Commercial Agriculture. So we're going to talk a little bit about the corn and soybean outlook, and it's really kind of a function of the updates that USDA provided earlier this week. Earlier this week, USDA provided the September crop production report as well as the updated World Ag Supply Demand Estimates report. And there was a lot of inf interesting information on those two reports, and I'm going to share with you some of the highlights. If you look on the corn side, some changes to the 2021 crop corn balance sheet. They reduced industrial usage by a small amount, about 20 million bushels. That puts total usage down there at, at about 6.775 billion bushels. And that was really a result of a reduction in ethanol usage. They did increase the export estimate slightly by 25 million bushels. So that puts the export uh, estimate at 2.475 billion bushels. And that gives us just a really small change in the corn ending stocks coming out of the 21 marketing year into the 22 marketing year. Uh, those are down just 5 million bushels, so it's at 1.525 billion bushels. The bigger changes were on the 22 crop balance sheet, and of course that's really the focus of interest on these two reports. They did reduce the U.S. corn crop yield estimate down to 172.5 bushels per acre. That's down from 175.4 last month and pretty much lined up with the trade's expectations coming into the report, although I have to say, at least from a kind of a personal perspective, I was still just a little bit surprised USDA pulled it down that hard uh, on this particular report. A small change in the reduction or in the harvested acreage estimate to 81.8 million acres. Uh, that was down from 81.9 in, in the August report. Uh, total estimated domestic usage during the course of the 22 crop year of about 150 million bushels compared to what they published last month. And that was really a function of two things. They reduced estimated feed usage by 100 million bushels, and that was a big change for feed, feed usage in one month, uh, a one-month report change. And the ethanol usage number for the upcoming year was also reduced by 50 million bushels. Um, and they pulled back the export forecast by 100 million bushels. So you had the supply reduction, but we also had effectively demand reductions. And when you look at it from that standpoint, we still wound up with a smaller carryover of 1.219 billion bushels. That's down about 169 million bushels compared to last month's estimate. Um, so if you look at the changes in the trade matrix, uh, those are kind of interesting as well. They were really all about Ukraine. They reduced Ukraine's beginning stocks from the 21-22 marketing year by about 7 million metric tons. They increased the size of the 22 Ukraine corn crop by about 1.5 million metric tons. They increased Ukraine's exports for the 22 crop year by about a half a million metric tons. And then they wound up reducing the ending stocks estimate for Ukraine uh, by about 7 million metric tons compared to that August forecast. Um, if you look at major corn exporters, the ending stocks export expected to decline about 3% compared to what they published in August. Uh, and if you look at world ending stocks outside China, which admittedly is the largest uh, share of, of those ending stocks, roughly two-thirds of the world's ending stocks are in China. But at world ending stocks outside of China, down about 5% or 2.15 million metric tons versus August. So when you look at it from that perspective, a tightening of supplies both in the U.S. and around the world to some extent. Um, 
The corn yield numbers were interesting. Michael, I know you've taken a look at this. If you look at those September corn yields compared to what we were anticipating based on the August report, what was your reaction? I was a little surprised, but but when you see, take the U.S. Uh, yield down three bushel, you've got, that's got to come from a lot of different states, and, and obviously it did. And that's what the, this map clearly shows. All the states in light red and dark red were down, uh, the dark red being South Dakota down the most. The only one that was up of a major uh, corn producer was, was Illinois, up slightly. Yeah, when you look at that chart, as well as the change from the prior year, to me the big surprise was the fact that they pulled back the eastern corn belt. I was expecting some of the reductions we saw, obviously, in the western corn belt, especially in the southwest, uh, southern plains, central plains. But I was a little surprised that we pulled the numbers back, uh, both on corn and soybeans, uh, in the eastern corn belt. Yeah, I think I think part of that is when you look at the the percent of the crop rated good to good to good to excellent, it's still relatively low compared to the previous five years, and so and there's also a lot of variability in yields, and so I think that's coming into play uh, when when you look at these estimates. Uh, you know, Iowa, for example. I mean, they re reduced Iowa. Uh, you know, that a bit of a surprise, but uh, nevertheless, uh, that you do the variability and and, uh, and the lower ratings, I think that, that it makes sense. And I guess one of the issues, I, as I visit with farmers here in the Eastern Corn Belt, is the variability as you move around. We had some places yes. that got very timely rains, had extremely good conditions, other places that really suffered some stress, and I think it's probably going to take a combine to sort out some of these yield numbers. And, and one of the things I think is very, very important to point out here, we were talking about earlier this morning in preparation for this webinar, is the large reductions in Nebraska and Kansas, you know, obviously very important cattle finishing regions, and so there's going to have to be some corn coming outside of Nebraska in Kansas into those areas uh, because the production's down significantly in those yeah. two states. And that could have some implications for basis. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But uh, So when you look at the corn production numbers, that gives us a corn estimate of 13.94 billion bushels for U.S. corn production, down from 15.12 last year. And as you look at it, that's the third smallest crop in the last 10 years. You have to go back a ways before you see years that are this tight with respect to total production. And keep in mind that total usage has been growing over that time. If you look at the corn export number, a little disappointing. Uh, they pulled that back, as I mentioned earlier. Um, and as you look at it, we're down now a couple of years in a row. And I think part of that is a function of concerns about world demand and, a, and a, maybe a contraction in the world economy. What do you, what's your take on that, Nathan? Yeah, I agree. I mean, uh, I think that, you know, seeing that decline over several years, uh, it's just a re reduction in overall demand that we're seeing. So if you look at the estimates on a month-by-month -month basis, I think it's useful to think about how accurate we've been with respect to expecting uh, the ending stocks to, to wind up where they actually wound up. And so the chart on the left looks at ending stocks estimates month by month for the 2021 crop, and the chart on the right looks at what we've got so far for the 2022 crop. And I think it just illustrates the challenge that we face in terms of estimating ending stocks, both because you've got complications on the supply side early in the season, and then later in the season, the complications focus primarily on what's really taking place with respect to demand. But if you look a year ago, a little over a year ago, in August uh, of 2021, uh, USDA was expecting to carry out from the 21 crop into the 22 crop year of about 1.24 billion bushels. We wound up at 1.525 billion bushels. Um, uh, if you look at this year's estimates, as recently as July, we were forecasting uh, carryover from the 22 crop into the 23 crop year of about 1.47 billion bushels. The, this month's estimates, the most recent estimates published this week, were at 1.219. So I think 
what that really points out to me, Nathan, is the level of risk that's out there, right? Yeah, I mean, the way that these numbers kind of bounce around, like you mentioned, it just shows how difficult it is to forecast this. And uh, that has a lot of implications for what happens in markets. And so being able to manage risk uh, is extremely important in an environment where we have so much difficulty forecasting what we're going to actually be producing, right? Yeah, to me, it just drives home the point that from a risk management plan, you have to recognize you're not going to be able to forecast with a high degree of accuracy what's going to take place with respect to prices and manage accordingly. And, and you know, Michael, that means we're going to talk about some of the budget issues that you've raised in the past a little later in the program. But it just kind of points out the need to think about your own situation with respect to profitability and, and manage your own business accordingly. Yeah, and def that's definitely the case. That It's very important, obviously, to calculate break-even prices, but also do some scenario planning. Uh, you know, what, would, what would my profitability situation look like under kind of uh, median prices, high prices, and low prices? Yeah, good point. So having said the uncertainty factor, I guess it is still useful to think of ending stocks uh, at relative to total usage, which is a way of scaling how tight ending stocks are compared to total demand over time. And it does look like a pretty tight situation. I think uh, a month ago, we were looking at ending stocks uh, projected at maybe a, uh, just under 10% of, of usage. Now we're looking at ending stocks projected a little bit under 9% of annual usage. That's relatively tight. The thumb rule continues to be above and below 10%. When ending stocks are below 10%, it suggests a relatively tight situation and, and potentially some uh, opportunity for some, some price improvement, obviously, as you move through the course of the season. It also points out it's going to be heavily dependent on what takes place with respect to yields this fall. Um, and I do think this is a year, I, you could probably say this every year, but I do think this year is even more so than some other years where those early yield reports are going to be really important in terms of estimating how accurate USDA's uh, September crop production report really is. And I think people will be looking pretty hard at that October report. Um, if you look at competing major exporters, and those of course are Argentina, Brazil, South Africa, Ukraine, and Russia, those ending stocks numbers look large relative to last year and the year before, but I think it's important to remember where those ending stocks are. And over 60% of the increase in ending stocks is sitting in Ukraine. And I think all of our viewers and listeners know how uncertain the situation is in Ukraine. Um, speaking from you know, what's taken place here recently, things look a little more optimistic with respect to Ukraine's ability to perhaps uh, move corn out of that country and into the world market, uh, but still a tremendous amount of uncertainty there with respect to the availability of, of those supplies coming out of Ukraine. Um, if you look at the ethanol numbers, USDA's estimate for the 22 crop year, 5.33 um, billion bushels, that's 50 million bushels lower than August, as I mentioned earlier. But as I look at the chart and think about what's taking place, it's pretty clear to me we've, we've essentially capped ethanol usage. Do you agree with that, Michael? Yes, I, I definitely agree with that. And you look at that long-run average since 2010, it's been about 5.1, 5.2, and so we're about where the average, average has been uh, since 2010. Yeah, if you look at the peak year, which was 2017 at 5.6, it seems unlikely that we're going to take that out uh, anytime soon. And I kind of look at that as the cap, and you know we're kind of in that 5.2, 5.3, maybe 5.4 billion bushels, uh, certainly with some concerns about weakness in the U.S. economy going forward. Uh, seems unlikely that we're going to see that, that uh, taken out. If you look at the margins, the margins for ethanol plants here in the Midwest have weakened. This is based on the Iowa State data where they simulate a, 
uh, stylized ethanol plant and estimate those margins. Those margins are still positive as of last week. We don't have updated numbers yet for this week, but still just barely positive and substantially lower than they were earlier in the year. And so those margins have been tightening. Um, and if you look at the ethanol production numbers, those have been gradually dropping off a bit as well. They're still ahead of where we were this time last year, but just barely. I think last week's estimate up 3% compared to the same week a year earlier. Would not be surprising going forward to see those ethanol production numbers actually drop a little bit below where we were this time last year. And I think that'd be very consistent uh, with, with USDA's forecast. Um, if you look at uh, USDA's marketing year average forecast, they did raise the price by 10 cents a bushel to 675 way above where last year's was. The 595, of course, was skewed downward by the fact that prices were lower in the early part of the marketing year when the bulk of the corn gets marketed. This year's a different story with the bulk of the corn uh, facing some relatively strong prices. So um, probably not much room for uh, future change in that price forecast if I had to guess today. And then December futures were kind of interesting. Following the report on Monday, they almost immediately went up about 10, 11 cents a bushel. Uh, I think the close was about 11 cents higher than the prior close, and really all of that occurred after the report came out with the tightening. Uh, and the rally in prices stopped just short of what some people consider to be the psychologically important $7 mark, which I think was a, a target for some folks. Uh, and then since then, we've, we've given about uh, a good chunk of that back, right? So we're, prices this morning before we went on the air, uh, around 674, 675. So we've, we've given some, some ground back there. Nathan, you've taken a look at uh, the basis numbers, and let's kind of walk through that. Yeah, so let's start out just taking a look at some storage opportunities as we kind of start thinking about getting the 22 crop harvested. You know, what, is, uh, what are we going to do with that crop? Do we want to store some of it? What are the opportunities we might have? So what I have here, uh, the, the kind of dark gold line here that runs across the top for most of the chart is just forward contract bids uh, from uh, a local elevator here in central Indiana. And what you can see is there's appreciation in those prices basically through the end of the year, right? Getting up to about 665 January uh, of next year. And then, you know, those forward contract bids kind of go flat, right? And there's a several things that underlie that. One of them is we don't have a lot of carry in futures markets right now. So looking at those more deferred futures contracts, they're really not trading for much more uh, than what the nearby is trading for, maybe five or six cents in carry uh, in those futures markets. And then they don't have a lot of appreciation uh, in basis built into those forward contract bids. And so what we end up with is pretty flat cash prices uh, going out into the beginning of next calendar year. Uh, the way to kind of compare those bids uh, is to kind of an implied break even. So if you were going to store the crop, uh, you know, you're going to have some costs wrapped up in that. And so basically I'm looking at, you know, if you stored the crop at harvest um, and what would you need to sell uh, that corn for at certain points in the future to offset those um, uh, storage costs. So the, the lighter, um, or excuse me, the gray line there across the bottom would be an on-farm storage scenario. So I'm just assuming one cent per bushel per month in storage costs. And then obviously opportunity costs uh, using 6% APR. So you can see if you're going to forego, you know, 648 for delivery this fall, uh, and you wanted to store, say, out until March of next year, you'd need to sell that corn for $6.65 uh, to offset your storage costs and just kind of break even uh, and being different between selling today and selling then. And again, it appears as though we have some uh, forward contract bids out there right now that are right at that 665, uh, at least at the location that I've pulled here. 
The other line there is the, the lighter gold line represents kind of a more of a commercial storage scenario. So again, I'm just assuming four cent per bushel per month, again, with the same 6% APR and opportunity cost. And you can see obviously that results in, in kind of higher implied break-evens associated uh, with foregoing that 648 for sale at harvest. You'd need to sell it for more like 677 uh, in March of next year just to offset those storage costs. So again, this is really just kind of some mental accounting for people to be thinking about as they're looking at forward contract uh, bids is comparing those with kind of, you know, whatever your cost structure is and thinking through, okay, do, you know, these are sales, sales that are going to be profitable if I'm going to go ahead and lock in both the futures and the basis uh, with a forward contract bid. So Nathan, one thing that comes to mind as I look at the chart, I know you've done some research on those uh, futures market spreads mm -hmm. over time. And historically, those spreads have a tendency on a seasonal basis to widen out, what, at harvest time, or maybe tail end of harvest? Yeah, so as we approached kind of the expiration of the November soybean futures and December corn futures contract, that's when those spreads tend to widen. Um, I, what I would say is, you know, the, the spreads that we have now, even if they widen, are not going to be anywhere near what we would typically see this time of year. So certainly there is opportunity for those spreads to widen uh, between now and, you know, the next month or two. Uh, but, you know, they're not going to, it's not going to be a lot, right? We're, we typically see a lot more of that, uh, it's more of a steady kind of increase in those spreads as opposed to like we're going to all of a sudden pick up 10 or 15 cents in the next a uh, couple of months. Again, that could happen, right? Again, depending on what happens with yields and things like that, uh, that could go one direction or the other. But, uh, but yeah, typically we would expect to see a little more carry build into these markets as we move towards expiration of those uh, fall contracts. And so your thought process there is that supplies maybe are tight enough to not, in, not need that much of a carry uh, in, built into the futures? Is that kind of what you're thinking? That appears to be the situation. Again, that could change as combines start rolling. If we get better reports on yield than, than what it appears to be now, right, that, that could change. But given where we are today and what it looks like yields are going to be maybe a little bit uh, more disappointing than what, what folks had hoped for at some point, uh, there really isn't a lot of reason to expect, you know, really wide spreads in those futures contracts this fall. So you've also taken a look at the basis, uh, looking at the nearby basis here in what, central Indiana? Thing. Yeah, so let's kind of look through kind of a series of basis charts here. Again, it, pretty consistent story, but just looking at it at several different levels, I think it's helpful for kind of thinking through what's going on. So we're starting here. This is just corn basis uh, in central Indiana. I'm looking at the three-year average. That's the, the blue line, the three-year historical average. And then the black line, I'm comparing that to what's happened so far this crop marketing year. So just two weeks of data there. And so you can see, as of right now, corn basis is really running along that historical three-year average, really in line with what we've seen the past couple of years, which is typically where we expect it uh, to be. Now, on the next chart, I have uh, corn basis, and same setup, three-year historical average, but now we're looking at southwest Indiana as opposed to central Indiana. And so you can see we have a slight kind of premium, right? So basis uh, this year appears to be, you know, maybe 10 to 15 cents stronger than that three-year historical average. And so the reason I look at southwest Indiana sometimes is just think about, you know, what's going on in the southern part of the state. The river drives a lot of what goes on down there. And so really it's kind of a, a proxy maybe for some, some of what's going on from, from an export perspective. And so to really drill into that, if you go into the next chart, what I have here is I've pulled out specifically uh, terminals that are on the river, right? So this, this kind of drills down even closer than just that southwest Indiana, but looks at uh, river terminals kind of along southern uh, Indiana as well as southern Illinois and kind of builds in an aggregate there. 
And so again, you can see there even kind of more strength in current basis levels at those river terminals. So probably 30 or so cents above that three-year historical average. Um, and so again, it appears to, to be that there's some strength along those river markets, likely from export demand, uh, driving some strength in basis here early in the season. Now again, that could kind of evolve as we kind of combine start rolling and we see what's going on on the supply side, but from the demand side, it appears as though that we, you know, have a little bit of strength, some opportunities, you know, uh, from the basis perspective on, on corn there in southern Indiana. So your advice would be, if you have an opportunity to do so, to latch on to some of these strong basis bids if you can get one, right? Certainly. Like if, you, if you're going to be selling crop this fall, uh, now would not be a bad time to lock in some basis levels. I mean, we're looking at favorable basis, and I would expect basis to decline. Uh, that's the typical pattern that we see as we move into the harvest season and crop becomes kind of uh, abundant. And as you look at the fact that we're starting off the year at above average, your research would suggest that over time you'd expect the basis to simply approach the average as you look out farther into the marketing year. Correct? Right. So if you're looking, you know, nearby and nearby might be a poor choice of words there. If you're looking in the near horizon, uh, that that premium above average, you know, may play out for the next eight to 12 weeks. But if you're looking, you know, further trying to forecast basis, you know, at the beginning of next calendar year, you would expect to move towards back uh, back towards that historical average. So the black line to, to move towards that blue line, that's what the research would tell us. Yeah, a good point. And you're looking at ethanol plant basis, which is really interesting. Yeah, so one, one more basis chart here, looking at this uh, for Indiana ethanol plants. So again, I've just taken all the ethanol plants in the state and averaged them together. So, you know, you know there's, there's places that are above or below this. This is kind of just sort of an index of, of the demand at those ethanol plants. Uh, and so what you can see is, again, you know, we've started out the year with uh, strong basis levels, at least, you know, stronger than, than the historical average would suggest. Uh, but again, a little more of a sharp decline there in the last week or so, um, heading again towards that historical average. I would expect that to continue uh, downward, getting more in line with, with the, the uh, basis pattern that we typically see for those ethanol plants. So the ethanol plant basis is really interesting. You and I have been talking about this for a while and yeah. trying to understand exactly what's going on there. But as you look at what's taking place in the ethanol market on a kind of a broader basis, there's not much reason to get too optimistic about these basis levels at the ethanol plants as those margins are starting to weaken, right? That's right. I mean, they're, they're definitely, it can sometimes be maybe a little bit lagged, but as you look at the production as well as the margins that you showed earlier, there is definitely correlation there, right? We can see those basis bids correlating with the margins and the production levels at ethanol plants. It's not perfect by any means, um, but uh, you would definitely expect, given where you showed us production is and likely is going, as well as what margins currently are, that those basis bids are going to kind of start to decline here as we get into harvest. And again, you know, crop is kind of abundant in terms of access to uh, new crop corn. And we didn't really get into it in this particular webinar, but a lot of this is tied back to what's going on with respect to gasoline usage here in the U.S., right? And which is a function of what's going on in the general economy. That's right. It all ties together. And, you know, it's this complicated web of, of gasoline demand. And that goes back even to COVID and what happened to gasoline demand and then what's happened in the general economy here recently with inflation and increasing uh, fuel prices. So it all ties together. So then the last thing here, uh, just kind of thinking uh, forward a little bit. So again, you know, we've kind of seen what uh, cash prices uh, are going to be in terms of uh, opportunities here, you know, for folks that are going to be selling crop at harvest. Uh, but for folks that are going to be storing and kind of looking forward, thinking about what cash price opportunities might be out there, 
Uh, I've just pulled kind of a hypothetical scenario here. Say you're looking at wanting to move some corn uh, after the first of the year, so in January. So you'd be looking at March 23 corn futures. So this morning, March 23 corn futures were trading for $6.79. I went to the crop basis tool, just picked central Indiana as a, an example here. Uh, based on the historical three-year average, I would expect basis uh, that time of year to be maybe about one over uh, that March futures contract. That would put us at a, a, a January cash price uh, of $6.80. And again, we'll, we'll talk about some break-evens a little bit later uh, Michael's going to show us those numbers. That's a very favorable uh, pricing opportunity in terms of uh, most people's break even. So yeah, a lot of people, a lot of people in 22 break have break evens that are 550 or under. Not everybody, but there's a lot of people that would have break evens around that. So this is a pretty good profit opportunity. Yeah, good point. And then thinking about the risk, it's always interesting to think about the risk of prices going up versus prices going down. So you've taken a look at the price distribution tool from the University of Illinois. Yeah, so this is the price distribution tool that they have. And again, what's basically going on here is they're looking at uh, the range or distribution of possible price outcomes between now and expiration of a particular contract. Here we've picked out the, the March 23 corn futures contract because that's what I just used in the previous example. Uh, in terms of that January delivery price. And so really what you're looking at here, what is the probability of that March 23 uh, futures contract in terms of what it's gonna be at expiration you know, come March uh, of next year? And so again, you can look at the, the uh, tables there on the right-hand side and get a little bit of an idea of the range of price potential uh, based on current price levels and also on futures volatility, uh, what the range of prices could be. So again, you know, you're looking, you've got about a, uh, one in four chance that that price is going to be below six dollars, uh, which again uh, is is a movement of eighty cents or so down. Uh, but at the same time, right, we've got about a twenty five percent chance that that price could be over seven fifty, which again is a you know another eighty or cents or so in upward direction. And so uh, you know we've got a two dollar range there in terms of the uh, inner fifty percent of that distribution. And so that's that's a pretty big swing that we could see you know, in a pretty short time period. So there's still upside and downside risk uh, on the example that I just showed on the previous slide. And so Michael, you always like to talk about scenario analysis. That really presents some opportunities to think about scenarios. One would be that midpoint, and then the other would be the yeah, 25 and, and 75%. That, that's what I typically use when I'm looking at this or illustrating this, is use that 25 percentile, a 50 percentile, and 75 percentile, just for basis, just like uh, just like Nathan did, and, and, then, and, and then put that in your budgets. And then think about what implications that has for profitability in yeah. your farm operation, and, and, right? And 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 really drill down to uh, potential capital purchases. Uh, you know, this is talking twenty, you know, twenty three now because you're you're selling the crop in twenty three. But but obviously, there's a lot more potential to buy some stuff and uh, and negotiate cash rents and all of that stuff with seven fifty corn versus six dollar corn. All right, let's switch gears and uh, talk a little bit about soybeans. There were some uh, key changes to the soybean balance sheet, and it says June. It should say September up there, but um, <laughs> the 21-22 export estimate uh, shifted by 15 million bushels. The new total is 2.145 billion bushels. Uh, ending stocks up 15 million bushels to 240 uh, coming into the 22 crop year. And then looking at the 2022 crop, some big changes. And this was really the shocker on the reports on Monday. They reduced harvested acreage to 86.6 million acres. That's down from 87.2 on the August report. They reduced the yield estimate to 50.5 versus 51.9 bushels per acre. 
And that doesn't sound like a, not a lot at first glance, but it was larger than anybody was expecting, I guess, is how I'd put that. Uh, that brings production down to 4.378 billion bushels compared to 4.53 on the August report. And then they did pull down both crush and exports, so they pulled down total usage down to 4.43, uh, down from 4.526 in August. And as you look at it, that really changed things quite a bit. And again, Michael, looking at the yield numbers, were you surprised looking at the changes on the September report versus August? I was. I, I don't know about other people in the industry, but I, I certainly was, was quite surprised. I mean, the, 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 the percentage of the soybean crop that's read good to excellent is about in the middle of the pack uh, when you look at the last five years. But nevertheless, it's quite a bit, uh, quite a bit uh, better than corn uh, across the U.S. And so I was a little surprised that the yield reduction was as big as it was. But you can see from this chart, it was a lot of states. Uh, the only states that we saw increases was Iowa, were Iowa uh, and Wisconsin. Yeah, it was interesting that Iowa went up on soybeans, but down on corn. Uh, and then the other thing that I thought was a little surprising, again, like I said on the corn, I was a little surprised at some of the reductions we saw in the eastern corn belt. Now, Indiana held steady uh, at that 60 bushels, no change there, but Ohio was down, Kentucky was down. So those were a little bit surprising to me. Um, and then, of course, as we've mentioned earlier, uh, the hot weather, the dry weather in the Central Plains and, and uh, Western Corn Belt uh, really did show up. Yeah, Kansas sticks out like a sore thumb there. I mean, the reduction was just humongous. And again, as you look at changes relative to last year, um, geez, if you look at Iowa, uh, down almost 5% compared to last year, uh, Wisconsin down, Missouri down. Illinois and Indiana basically hanging in pretty close to where they were last year, right? Yeah, and obviously North Dakota, South Dakota, and Minnesota were up substantially because they had such such poor poor crops last year. But uh, but that's offset by some dec some declines in key states like Nebraska and Kansas. Missouri's down, Iowa's down, just like you said. Uh, that all adds up uh, to a, to a large reduction in production. So as you look at the production numbers, instead of looking at a record soybean crop in 2022, which is what we were anticipating earlier in the summer, now we're a little bit below where we were this time last year at 4.38 billion bushels. And of course, uh, that really does tighten things up. And I guess one way to think about the level of surprise on the report is to compare the report uh, numbers provided by USDA with respect to production and the industry expectations coming in. And there's several different surveys out there. This is a, one particular survey that, that uh, NAS provided. But you look at the chart and you see e each of those individual dots from the individual um, analyst uh, reporting their estimate coming into the report and the red bar, or red dot from USDA, they were well below anybody's expectation. I think the lowest forecast coming in was just a little bit below 4.45 billion bushels for production. Of course, USDA came in below 4.4 billion bushels. So it was a surprise. We always talk about the fact that markets respond to un uh, new information. And this, this set of reports, the crop production report as well as the WASDE report, provided some new information and it was positive for prices and that was reflected almost immediately when soybeans uh, rose immediately following the report. So I mentioned earlier that the export numbers have been soft. Uh, USDA reduced the 22 crop export forecast by about 70 million bushels. So it's now at 2.09. So it'd be a couple of years in a row to see weaker exports on the soybean front. And you know the weakness there is really tied primarily to one country. It's really all about China. 
Uh, and there's a lot going on there. Some of it's related to their livestock industry. A lot of it, I think, is related to the lockdowns that have taken place and the cutbacks that's imposed on the Chinese economy. But exports, very soft, anticipated going to China, and they've been soft so far. So it's going to be interesting to see how that shakes out. I still think, from in terms of exports, the market is going to watch the week-by-week -week export numbers uh, coming out of USDA to get a handle on what's really taking place with respect to China. Nathan, we talked about this with respect to corn. It's, it's, a, it's about as interesting on the soybean yeah. side. When you look at the ending stocks forecast and the variability that we've experienced in those, it's, it's pretty big. Um, looking at the 21 crop estimates from USDA starting in May of 20 and then carrying forward all the way through the 21 uh, crop year, those numbers started off at about 140 million bushel carryover. We wound up at 240. In between, for a while, we thought it might be as high as 350. So that's a lot of variability with respect to how large that carryover might be on a month-to-month -month basis. You look at the numbers so far in the 22 crop year, again, going back to May, in May, USDA was anticipating that we would carry 310 million bushels from the 22 crop year into the 23 crop year. This month's report suggests that that's going to be down around 200 million bushels. And you know, it remains to be seen with respect to the uncertainty we have about some of these yield numbers, right, as to whether or not that's going to be the, the final say in terms of how much we carry over. But again, I think it points out the level of risk that's out there from a marketing standpoint, right? Absolutely. So ending stocks, having said that, having given, you know, maybe a little bit of uh, uncertainty about those ending stocks <laughs> estimates, I think it's useful to think about where they are relative to total usage. And they are very tight. Uh, we're at less than 5% of estimated usage in terms of carryover coming out of the 22 crop into the 23 crop year. So that puts a lot of pressure on yields, uh, not only for the U.S. coming out of the 22 crop, but also with respect to what's going to happen in South America this, this fall and this winter, right? So uh, we didn't put any charts in for it, but as you think about what's taking place in South America, there's an expectation to see a significant acreage increase down there. I think USDA is projecting about a 5 million acre uh, increase in uh, South America on a combined basis. Could have a big impact on uh, total production, but there's also some weather concerns in South America, so we've got a lot of uncertainty there. If you look at competing major exporters, and of course those competing major exporters with the U.S. for the soybeans are Brazil, Argentina, and Paraguay, those ending stocks coming out of the 22 crop year into the 23 are up a little bit, but again, a lot of issues with respect to how large supplies are going to be uh, coming out of South America coming in uh, this, this uh, fall season and especially obviously in, in the winter. So, uh, No change in USDA's marketing year average price forecast. They left it at $14.35. That's up a little over a dollar compared to the 21 crop estimate of $13.30. And as you look at the soybean chart, this is the November soybean chart. It took off like a rocket on Monday following the release of the report. It took a few minutes, but it, uh, within relatively short order, we were up about 75, 76 cents, I think, at the close. But later in the week, we've gradually given back a good chunk of that. In fact, we've given up um, maybe over half of, of Monday's increase uh, as we wound through the rest, uh, rest of the week. Now, we don't have the close yet here on Friday, but um, still a relatively weak week after Monday's initial reaction. Uh, so, Nathan, you've taken a look at the bids. Yeah, so let's look at uh, some forward contract bids <clears throat> for soybeans here, again, just from, from one location in central Indiana. So again, pretty similar to what we saw for corn, you know, maybe some slight appreciation in that price through about the end of the year. 
and then relatively flat or maybe even declining uh, in terms of what those cash price bids are you know going into to next uh, spring and again that's driven by very little carry uh, in, in soybean futures market so again those deferred soybean futures are, are not trading for uh, much above what the nearby soybean futures uh, are trading for and then again not a lot of appreciation in those basis bids moving uh, through the crop marketing year so again, if you compare those with kind of some, some implied break-even prices, again, we've got an on-farm scenario and then a, a commercial storage scenario. So again, what those numbers are telling us, right? So if you're gonna forego the $14.19 bid that's available to you uh, this fall, right? You're gonna need to be looking at a cash price of $14.75 out into May of 23, just to offset <clears throat> those on-farm storage costs. Again, for the commercial uh, scenario, even higher than that, you're looking at a, a cash price of $14.96. That would be equivalent to the $14.19 that you'd have access to today, including you know, the cost that you'd have incurred uh, storing from now to, to next summer. So uh, just again, mental accounting for people to be doing as they're thinking about storage, potentially thinking about uh, forward contracting, you're gonna wanna compare those prices that are available to what your cost structure is and what you're gonna have in terms of costs wrapped up in those stored commodities. So Nathan, the soybean bid <coughs> chart looks different than the corn bid chart. Because your corn bid chart, if you wanted to hang on, for example, into say January, the market was offering enough return for you to essentially be, essentially break even. Break even, yeah. Uh, whereas your soybean chart says, you're gonna be in the hole, right? Yeah, I mean, and again, that's reflective of both the bid, but then also the higher cost structure, right? You've got a $14 commodity, so your opportunity cost is a little higher. So there's several things that play into that, but absolutely, uh, you know, uh, the, the time frame there is much tighter on the soybeans than it was for the corn. And I think to <clears> me, it, it kind of illustrates maybe the risk that we face on the soybean side, maybe some expression of concern there with respect to how large supplies might be coming out of South America into that winter time frame. Yeah, exactly. I think that's, that, well, that has a big impact, I know, on, on the basis patterns, um, but, you know, other things as well. Yeah, so it kind of points out the risk of, of hanging on to unpriced soybean storage. And I guess this might be a good point to, to maybe revisit some of your other research with respect to the risk of just unpriced storage, because you've looked at that for both corn and soybeans. Yeah. So basically the, the finding was that, you know, uh, there are opportunities with both corn and soybeans to have on-price storage as part of a, a portfolio of broader marketing approaches. Uh, the difference being that uh, with corn, uh, we saw very infrequent opportunities to earn very large returns. So essentially big rallies in, in corn futures prices between fall and the following year. Uh, but you know, if that happened you know, three, four, five times out of the last 20 years, these big you know, large returns that you know, not, not super frequent, uh, but, but when, when you hit a home run, you hit a home run. With soybeans, what we saw was a little bit different in terms of that on-price strategy really frequently producing uh, pretty, pretty big returns, more frequently, I should say, than corn. And so maybe, you know, 10 to 15 out of the last 30 years, you could see pretty large, again, rallies in soybean futures prices from fall into the following year, resulting in, in you know, big opportunities for on-price uh, returns to storage where you didn't take any position on either futures or basis. And so from, from um, both a average return and a frequency perspective, you know, historically speaking, soybeans uh, offer a pretty good opportunity on, on the storage returns 
again, it's a risk, right? There's downside risk associated with that strategy. But if you look at the frequency of, of that happening, uh, our research showed that you know the soybeans were certainly the the more frequent opportunity for for those returns to on-price storage. So the argument in favor of unpriced <clears throat> soybean storage right now would be the fact that the carryover looks very tight. Mm -hmm. uh, the argument in against it would be concerns about demand out of China, and the risk of very large supply increases coming out of South America. Yeah, exactly. And so it's a balancing act, and and we don't know how how those are going to play out. Um, but if you look at history, um, and we, we, you and I have been talking about this portfolio aspect of marketing, um, you might want to allocate a portion of your portfolio to that unpriced strategy, recognizing that it's got a significant amount of risk with it, right? Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. I mean, you, you really laid out kind of what the you know, pros and cons on each side of, of that argument would be. Um, and again, you combine that with kind of the historical analysis and what we know is happening in the current year with carryovers. Um, yeah, you, you know, having that as a part of a broader portfolio is, is certainly not a bad idea. And the other aspect of the portfolio, Michael, is to think about the profitability, right? What, what, are you, what profit opportunity are you passing up? And you've been looking at that a little bit. Yeah, when I talk about profit opportunity, what I'm, what I'm really <laughs> focusing on typically is downside risk. You know, you, I do, you, can you take the risk that these prices might go down? Uh, you, you know, that some people can, some people can't. And, and so that's something you definitely want to take a look at. So you want to think about your break-evens, yes. what kind of profit opportunity you have, and, and yeah. whether or not you want to lock that in. Yeah. And, and yeah. I think all of us would agree you don't want to bet everything on no. one particular strategy. So, all right. So you've taken a look at, at basis levels as well. Yeah. So again, kind of just a sequence of basis charts here to kind of help us think through what's going on. Pretty, pretty similar, but maybe more... Um, uh, sh more of a strong um, effect here on the, the soybean side as opposed to what we saw with corn. So again, we started out September, first week of September of the, the 22 crop marketing year uh, with, with very strong basis relative that historical two-year average. I'm looking at a two-year average on soybeans as opposed to the three-year average on corn, corn. That's just the thumb rules that we use based on some research that I did uh, with a graduate student several years ago. Uh, but what we've seen is, you know, we started out the year strong basis levels here. This is, again, is central Indiana. Uh, we saw that decline pretty sharply in, in the last week or so. And again, that's partially driven by the, the uh, big rally that we saw in futures prices uh, after the, the report this Monday. And so, again, as those increased, clearly basis did not keep up with where futures were. But again, Basically, we would expect to see that black line really move towards the, the blue line, the historical average anyway. And so I would expect as we move into harvest to see soybean basis continue to decline. And again, that could change depending on what we end up seeing with yields and things of that nature as you know, different locations could um, uh, need to pull crop in versus uh, other locations maybe have better yields. Yeah, and you look at those basis <laughs> bids that you've got here for the first couple of weeks of September. Those are really old crop bids. I mean, we really haven't seen any harvest as significant uh, across Indiana yet. So right. those are really just trying to pull the, those last few uh, bushels of soybeans out of bins, right? Right. Yeah, we're transitioning from old crop to new crop, right? And so we're still kind of in that old crop phase. So again, very similar here. This is Southwest Indiana. Uh, and so again, even stronger basis levels uh, down there in Southwest Indiana. Again, a sharp decline this week, uh, not, not necessarily surprising. And, and again, you would expect to see that kind of uh, move lower as we move into the harvest season. 
again, zoning in a little bit. So that last chart was Southwest Indiana. Now we're looking at just the river, river terminals in Southern Indiana and Southern Illinois. And again, you basically see the same kind of pattern. We had, you know, had or have uh, relatively strong uh, soybean basis bids there along the river. But again, pretty sharp decline in the last week uh, and, and probably an expectation that that would continue to move downward. Yeah, as soon as the combines roll, I think we're going to see it probably approach the average, right? Don't you think? Or close that, that's, to it? That's what I would expect. Again, if, if soybean yields come in, you know, weaker than even they're expected to now, we could see that maybe not reach the, the lows that we typically see, but still moving lower, right? So it may not bottom out at that historical average, but it's at least going to move in that direction. Okay, and then lastly, this is uh, soybean uh, basis bids at processors. So similar to what I've done for, for ethanol demand, I've just taken all the processors across the state of Indiana, soybean processors, and kind of lumped them in, into one average or kind of index of what soybean basis is at those uh, processor locations. And again, not as strong as what you're seeing uh, from the export side on those river markets in terms of where basis is, but still strong basis. Uh, at those soybean processors relative to the historical average, and again, moving downward uh, as we move towards harvest. So you've taken a look at March futures like you did on corn. Yeah, so same thing, just trying to get people thinking maybe past harvest here uh, in terms of maybe some pricing opportunities toward the beginning of next calendar year. So I looked at uh, March 23 uh, soybean futures this morning at $14.56. Again, I went to the crop basis tool, looked at central Indiana, uh, you know, pulled out a, a basis bid for that January delivery of probably somewhere around 13 cents under uh, the March futures. That puts us at a, a January delivery price of uh, $14.43 a bushel. Again, you know, relative to the break-evens that Michael's going to show us, still a favorable price for soybeans uh, when you think about pricing opportunities for the crop. Yeah, certainly given the profit potential we're seeing here, considering marking at least some of the crop, uh, seems to be prudent strategy in my mind. You'll talk more about those break-evens in a yeah. bit, but uh, those are going to be interesting. All right. So then, you know, just wrapping up with the same uh, distribution, and again, I'm looking at uh, the March 23 soybean futures, because that's the, the futures price that I was using on the previous slide. And we're just looking at the distribution of possible prices for that contract when it gets to expiration there in, in March of 23. And so again, you know, looking at those kind of 25th and 75th percentiles, they don't show up in the table here exactly, but we can get kind of close. So you know you got uh, about a, what, a 30, 33% chance of being lower than 1350. So again, that's a decline of about a dollar between now and expiration of that March contract. And then maybe a 30% chance or so of being above 1550. So again, another dollar on the upside. So again, we're looking at about a two dollar range between uh, that that 25th percentile and 75th percentile. So upside potential certainly. And again, like we've talked about, some of the uh, supply and demand factors that are going to play into what these soybean prices are going to do. Uh, but you know, uh, there's also upside potential uh, associated with that information. So this chart really speaks to the risk that we were talking about earlier, right? With respect to there is just a lot of unknowns out there, <clears throat> and they could have a very big impact on soybean prices in both directions, That's right. right? And so you just have to recognize that that risk is out there, and it's going to be very difficult to anticipate. So it really talks about, or it really f encourages us to focus on developing a risk management plan. 
And, and, and the risk, you know, the, let's talk a little bit about the difference in the export demand for, for corn and soybeans. We didn't really talk about that today too much, but let's just remind the, the viewer that we only export about 15, 16% of the corn, so the domestic market really is very important, obviously. You know, 16% is still large, because uh, we export a lot of corn, we're the number one exporter of corn, but we export 45 to 50% of our soybeans. And so that soybean market, you have to look at what happening, what's happening in Brazil, you have to look at what's happening in China, because it's going to drive that market. Yeah, good point. So speak, we've been talking about break-even prices, Michael. Let's, let's talk about them in more detail. Yeah, rather than just looking at 22 and 23, I thought I'd give some historical perspective here, not to depress people because break-even <laughs> prices have increased rather dramatically, but just to show that uh, and then give some early estimates for 23. And so that's what I'm trying trying to do here. Uh, we were talking about we were talking about futures prices earlier uh, for 22 crop. The bottom line is is the break-even price for for a lot of people is considerably below uh, the prices we're talking about. And so uh, it looks like there's going to be some pretty good profits uh, for 22. Uh, looking at 23, uh, I did look at, uh, I look at the deferred uh, corn futures and deferred soybean futures. You're at about break even uh, for the average productivity, uh, average productivity uh, uh, rotation corn in the Indiana on the high productivity. It looks like there's some profit potential there. That's not real surprising. Usually when we're looking that far ahead, uh, it's not surprising to see more of a break even situation, but that's about where we are today. Yeah, and so for some clarity with respect to how you compute your break even uh, prices, Michael, just elaborate on that a little bit. This includes all costs, and so obviously all the cash costs are in included, fertilizer, ag chemical, seed, repairs, and, and interest, and those kinds of things. But I also have an opportunity cost for machinery ownership, so you're paying yourself for the fact that you own machinery. The same with labor, both operator and hybrid, hired labor is included uh, in these estimates, as well as land. And so if you own land, uh, we, we charge a, an imputed rental charge for that land uh, that's equal to the, to the market cash rent in that area. And so all costs are included. That's why a break-even is not a train wreck. Yeah. Good point. So soybeans, same story? Very similar story in soybeans. On, on both corn and soybeans, when you're looking at the 23 compared to the 22, you're looking at about a 6 to 7% uh, increase in production costs. And that might surprise a few people, particularly on the corn side, because it does look like fertilizer costs are going to be lower uh, for the 23 crop compared to the 22 crop, particularly if you priced fertilizer in February, March of 22 for the 22 crop. However, there's other costs uh, that are going up as fast as general inflation. Uh, you know, obviously interest rates going up, but repairs, ag chemicals, seed, some of those costs, we're seeing some upward pressure as well as cash rent. Uh, I've got a 5% increase in cash rent built into the 23 break-even. So it might be surprising to some people that those break-evens are continuing to increase in 23. Uh, that's This is an early look. We might change that as we get more information about fertilizer costs in particular. Uh, but right now, it looks like costs are going to be up. Uh, similar to general inflation rate. So, so, Michael, thinking about your cost estimates and where we've been these last two years, we've had very good returns in uh, off of the 21 crop, uh, very good returns, it looks like, off of the 22 crop. You're essentially looking at a situation where we probably start going back towards more of a break-even maybe more of a return to the long-term net farm income average. Is that correct? Yeah, and I think we're, we're really going back to more of a 2020 situation without the government payments. We're getting most of the, most of the income from the, from the market, but we're going back to a 2020 situation, which, which uh, compared to 2014 to 2019 is still pretty good, uh, but certainly not as good as 21 and 22. Okay. 
Uh, looking at this corn versus soybeans, we show this chart uh, frequently. Uh, we can see that that corn looks pretty good in 22, uh, despite uh, that spike we saw in soybean prices. This is incorporating that spike in soybean prices uh, that we saw after the Monday report uh, into the estimates. I don't have 23 on the chart here, but I did estimate it. Uh, I just didn't include it in the chart. We're looking at a, about a $15 per acre advantage for corn. Uh, in 23. The re only reason I mentioned that, I was going to mention it earlier when we talked about stocks to use. Because the stocks to use for corn and soybeans are so tight, they're going to compete for acres uh, again uh, in 23. And so it'll be interesting to see how that all, all ends up in terms of the acreage mix between corn and soybeans. Because they both, the signal is really bullish to increase acreage. Yeah, so those estimates are going to bounce around all winter long, right? As yes. the market attempts to yes. ascertain how many acres are going to each yeah. of the two enterprises, right? Uh, just just uh, taking a, a look at uh, uh, potential cash rent uh, increases in 23, as I indicated, I'm including a 5% increase right now, which would be very similar to inflation. Uh, so from an inflation-adjusted standpoint, essentially no increase. Uh, and and uh, I'm basing that on, on the net return to land that we've seen uh, recently uh, and, and, and the fact that we did have some pretty, pretty large increase in 22, a 10% increase in 22. I, I think the, the increase in 22 is really driven by that extremely profitable uh, 21. It's not that 22 uh, is, is not profitable, but it's not, certainly not as good as 21. Uh, and, and really, uh, in my mind, uh, it means that we're going to have a smaller increase in 2023 20, compared to 22. So your discussion of cash rents brings up the next topic, which you've been getting, and I've been getting questions as well, about how can we look at some alternative leasing arrangements. Yes. And you've taken a look at flex rent. So you might start off by defining what you mean by First flex rent. First of all, rent. I'm including these primarily to advertise the publication that's on the Center for Commercial Agriculture website that has much more detail about the comparison between fixed cash, flexible cash, and share lease uh, using using a kind of a West Central uh, case farm situation. So I encourage you to take a look at that. We've defined terms very carefully in that article and much more information uh, than what's in these two slides. But what I've done here is I've taken a, a flex lease arrangement that, that's somewhat common, but these are the, the flex lease arrangements, uh, there's a lot of different arrangements. And so, uh, and so don't think this is necessarily the only one because it's not. Uh, this one here has a pretty high base uh, compared to some other flex lease arrangements, a 90% base, and that's very important. Uh, that means when, uh, uh, when, this, when you have a situation where crop returns are, are relatively low, you get 90% of the, of the market cash rent. That's what that 90% base means. Means. In years where the income is relatively high, like it was in 21 and 22, uh, you get a bonus. Uh, and here I'm, I'm, I'm basing the bonus on income, uh, income that's above non-land costs. And so we look at budget, budgeted costs, and we say, okay, if income's above uh, these these these, co this, these costs, then we split we split that income that's above the cost. And so it's it's a fairly it, it sounds complicated, but it's not uh, using some published uh, published budget information, then just looking whether income goes above that and splitting that income. Obviously, in 21 and 22, uh, there was some pretty big bonuses, and that's why we're getting the questions. You know, maybe some people had fixed cash rents and said, man, I didn't I didn't get near as much as I would have gotten if I been in some kind of share lease or flex lease and so and, and but 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 having said that I think 23 is one of those years where this flex rent makes makes quite a bit of sense given the uncertainty. We've uh, got uncertainty on output prices yes, as and, well as and, costs. Yes. 
And, and so from a from a, a landlord that that's looking at a situation, well, if you know if if if, uh, if the cost structure is, is a little bit lower next year, let's say Langemeyer is wrong on his seven uh, percent increase, and it's not quite that high, and, and we have better prices than what we're seeing, uh, you know, next next fall, and perhaps we get good yields. There's a chance for a big bonus uh, in 23, and so to to, to try to capture that uh, a flex rent arrangement makes sense. Now, having said that, if, you, if you're going to enter a flexless lease arrangement, you can't use an oral lease. It's not that you can, but it's highly recommended to use a written lease because there's several terms that need to be defined. How do I measure price? If I'm doing this, this, this non-land uh, income above non-land costs, how do I define these costs? And so there's a lot of terms that have to be defined and agreed upon by both the landlord and the operator. Yeah, good point. And it's a way for people to share risk. Yes. From a landlord perspective, one reason people like cash rent is because they know what their income's gonna be. You can set the base in the flex rent at a level that you're comfortable with from an income standpoint. And the example you used here was 90%, but you point out, I mean, there's all kinds of yeah. percentages that are being used out there with respect to where you establish that base, right? I've got one more chart here, and the reason I have this chart in there is there is less downside risk with the flex rent lease uh, from a landlord perspective than there is in a share lease. Uh, the share lease, by definition, there's no bottom. If the income's really low uh, and you have relatively high costs, you're not going to make very much money on that share lease. Uh, and, and so 15, for example, uh, the, the share lease was much worse than the flex rent lease and the, and the fixed cash rent, rent lease. Other years, uh, 7, to, 7 to 11, the, the share lease was better than, was better than uh, the, the cash rent, similar to the flex lease. Uh, the same in, in 2021 and 22. And, and I mean, the share lease uh, was pretty good during those years and, and similar to the flex rent. So really the flex rent is kind of in between uh, the, the market cash rent and the share lease. Uh, but the important point is it, 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 does have, it does have potential for lower cash rent because you have that 90% base and there is gonna be years uh, such as 14 to 18 14 to 19 on this chart, where you're just going to get the base rent. Uh, but the important point there is, is it does uh, it does set the floor uh, for the downside risk uh, compared to the share lease, and then you have that upside. And so years in 21, uh, you get a pretty good bonus uh, in addition to that base rent. And so it has features of both uh, the share lease and and the market cash rent. Uh, but it's certainly better from a downside risk standpoint than the share lease. It has a, a smoothing effect, effectively, yes. right? All right, so you've taken a look at net farm income. This is a final chart. I, I just to end on an uh, uh, optimistic note here. Uh, this has been uh, bouncing all over the place, obviously, with the, with the bouncing around of prices and yields. Uh, but, but right now, uh, the, the 22 uh, uh, net farm income for this case farm looks really good. A little bit lower than 21, but, but certainly better than what we thought it was going to be earlier this year, particularly in May, uh, you know, when, when prices were lower and we weren't sure what the yields were going to be and, uh, and how all the fallout of these high costs, how that was going to work out. But it, it's really turning in to be a, a, a pretty good year. Looking at the years where you simulated returns going back to 2007, there's only one year better than this. Yes, and that would that be last 21. 21, right? So, all right. So with that, that kind of wraps up our webinar for today. Uh, you can subscribe to our podcast, Purdue Commercial Agcast, available on our website. This is going to be available not only as a webinar, but also as a podcast. And then we have another number of other uh, programs available as, as podcasts as well. So you can check out all those details at our website, purdue.edu slash commercial ag. 
And with that, I want to thank you for joining us, and I want to thank my colleagues, Dr. Michael Langemeyer and Dr. Nathan Thompson, for joining us as well. And on behalf of the Center for Commercial Agriculture, I'm Jim Minter. Thanks for joining us.